It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, further to our usual updates on the ongoing crisis, we talk to Oleksandr Shin, a Ukrainian activist who will be telling us about his work on bridging the gap between Ukraine and Taiwan. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, 12th of July, day 139. And today I'm joined by Joe Barnes, our Brussels correspondent, and Nicola Smith, our Asia correspondent, who has just returned from Ukraine and is based currently in Taiwan. I started by asking Joe on the latest developments of the past 24 hours. Hi, Francis, and hi, folks. Yeah, um, we have been in for quite 24 hours recently, despite there being this kind of operational pause that uh, kind of Russia talks about. So I think the kind of the big headline story of the day is the, uh, the death toll of the Russian missile strike that blew up an apartment block in the Donetsk town of, and excuse my pronunciation here, Chavish Yar has climbed to 31 now and saying rescuers are still working on the scene, trying to pull more bodies out, trying to find more survivors. Um, there is speculation that number is continuing to rise, the number of dead. Um, so one Ukrainian MP has said on Twitter that it's at least 33 uh, dead since Zelensky gave his overnight kind of address, spamming out there being 31. Um, and then on the, on the flip side of that, we've had the Ukrainian strike on a Russian munitions depot deep behind the Russian line in the occupied, occupied town of Nova Kakhovka, sorry, pronunciation again, um, which Kremlin-backed media have said has killed at least seven people and wounded 60 more. And I think we're going to go on to kind of the weapon systems behind that a little later. And then the, the other kind of things to note around are that Britain's uh, Ministry of Defence, and this kind of goes in with what analysts have been saying recently, is they're outlining the struggle that Russia is having at replacing and kind of replenishing its forces that are kind of very battle-stricken. Uh, they've lost huge kind of numbers of troops. And so one thing the MOD has been saying today in its kind of daily uh, intelligence briefing is that it's using non-traditional recruitment methods. And they're suggesting that 
they are literally pulling people out of prison and giving them to the Wagner group of kind of Kremlin-friendly mercenaries and basically sending them to fight and say, one thing that the MOD said, if this is true, this move likely indicates difficulties in replacing the significant number of Russian casualties that basically Moscow has sustained in the 138 days of war now. And so we've got more kind of signs that Russia is preparing to mount an attack on the Donetsk region. So it's mainly got control of Luhansk. So the kind of official, local officials there say that their forces are still kind of fighting kind of tooth and nail to, for little villages on the outskirts of the town. But Russia is creeping towards Donetsk, which is the other half of the Donbass region. And there's kind of likelihood that those attacks are going to be focused on Bakhmut, which is a, a town on the edge. And there's a there's a road from Severodonetsk uh, in Luhansk right through into kind of the heart, the main towns of of the, the Donetsk region and so Kramatorsk and Slovyansk are the two main ones we're looking at there. Then so looking at some more domestic Ukrainian uh, stories, um, Ukrainian's richest man, uh, Rinit Akhmatov, has announced that he will hand over his entire media empire to the government, and that will be kind of great news in Brussels in the West of kind of who are looking to Ukraine to kind of make sure that it gets rid of its oligarch culture, um, which Russia was unable to get rid of and has basically kind of led to this moment because they're kind of looking to free uh, Ukraine of corruption before they're kind of ploughing in vast sums of money to help with the rebuild and kind of take Ukraine into the European Union in the decades to come. And then um, other things I think we're going to touch upon in more detail later is the uh, the wheat field fires. Um, so we've seen kind of footage uh, being spread over social media and in the in local news reports of kind of the big blazes covering huge hectares of wheat, barley and other grain fields in the Kherson region, which is uh, in the south. Um, and it's basically what Ukraine says is another part of its war, Russia's war on food exports. We know about the blockades of Ukraine's main ports, which means there's millions and millions of tonnes of grains kind of left to rot in various ports on the south, southern tip of Ukraine. But this is just another part of what Kiev says is kind of Russia's attempt to really harm Ukraine's main kind of export market. And I think that's I think that's what where we are so far. Thanks, Joe. Just on that last point, I mean, some of the images that are coming out of of these field uh, fields being burnt in Ukraine are, are really striking and, and 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 concerning. You're you're based in Brussels. What is the feeling within the European Union at seeing images like this? Because we've talked, as you allude to there a lot on this podcast about energy and food being on the front line in this war in a same in a similar vein as to the military so uh, do you get a sense of 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 the concern about this and the impact that this this may have on on europe food supplies generally oh no so this what is one of the massive things of kind of and maybe even wider than the eu so uh, nato circles g7 g20 kind of just just bilateral international diplomacy a lot of it focuses on food it might not affect Europe. It might say it might not affect the UK. But Ukraine being kind of the global breadbasket, it mainly supplies kind of Africa um, in terms of it. And while the food crisis isn't imminent, it is coming. And the longer this war goes on, the 
the higher the cost of breads and other kind of food staples in Africa will go up and that will only drive kind of a, a global food crisis um, and kind of shortages of food that we've, we've kind of seen recently in the past and but we've we've not really had it massively affecting kind of African countries that already kind of struggle with things like drought and being able to grow their own food. So that's one thing, uh, kind of Brussels, um, other kind of European capitals, I'm sure in Washington, um, in NATO allies, will be looking at closely is what Russia is doing. And the West has openly accused Russia of kind of waging a hybrid war in terms of blocking food exports and trying to basically crush Ukraine's main, one of Ukraine's main export markets being kind of grains. So they're watching this carefully and they'll they'll see this and it will cause them it will cause kind of anger but they will also hopefully sharpen minds and kind of look at better plans for getting grains out of ukraine quicker because they've seen grain fields completely destroyed by shelling and now we're seeing these kind of fields set on fire deliberately that's what the ukrainian police are saying um in deliberate arson attacks to basically crush their industry so yeah the west will take this kind of especially uh not not with kind of open arms they will really good looking into it and looking what they can do to help out. And just on that, we're, we're, we're hearing this has only just been released in the last sort of half an hour or so that uh, there's continued and further financial support of Ukraine. And indeed, the Ukraine's prime minister has thanked the United States for its support after receiving a further $1.7 billion in international financial assistance. And it also sounds as if there's been movement from Japan as well in agreeing to tackle the economic hit of the war on global markets. So further examples there of Western unity that won't necessarily attract the headlines. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just sort of more money and and that doesn't necessarily uh, uh, draw people to to want to read the story, but really important developments nonetheless. Um, Something else that's also just occurred in in, in the last um, hour or so is that the Belarusian president has claimed that the West is preparing to attack Russia uh, via the country. Um, not sure what, if you've got any thoughts on on that, Joe. I mean, we've heard, of course, um, similar bombastic statements from um, from the president of Belarus. But this seems, um, well, <laughs> um, quite a shocking one and obviously intended for, for a domestic audience, but also no doubt appealing to, to Putin as well. Yes, I would take uh, what comes out of Lukashenko's government with a huge pinch of salt, as I would do Vladimir Putin's government. I think the West has been quite um, kind of stark in what it said, and it won't itself become involved uh, in the war. It doesn't want to be provocative in any way um, in terms of using its own kind of its own troops. It doesn't want its own boots on the ground. It doesn't doesn't want a military solution uh, from its point of from its involvement and its point of view. It wants Ukraine to basically fight and win. Um, and so, so I think that's kind of, uh, kind of for the birds that statement. I don't, I don't see, um, I don't see the West suddenly deciding to march through Minsk, gone to Moscow. Even though some, some people would probably be quite buoyed by what they've seen and the, the poor performance of the Ukrainian, uh, sorry, the Russian army, and they would fancy their chances. Um, I remember speaking to one former tank commander in the early days of the war, and, and he was saying that, blimey, a Challenger tank brigade would absolutely steamroll. Uh, Russia in terms of what we've seen kind of so far so but that is very much not on the cards and I think 
Lukashenko and his government are probably telling porcupines. Yes, absolutely. And I would just add to that that, as we've talked about many times in the podcast, there is a sort of mentality within within Russia and 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 within parts of Eastern Europe that that really are sort of paranoid about the idea of Western invasions, which of course have taken part not only in the 20th century, but also in the 19th century. And uh, um, that mentality is often fed upon by uh, by the leaders of those countries in order to garner support for the operations like those that we've seen in Ukraine. Just whilst we're on the subject of, 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 of military affairs, um, before we turn to Taiwan, I know you were keen, Joe, to talk about HIMARS and um, developments in that area of weaponry. Um, just wanted you to, to, to hear your thoughts on that before we turn to, to, Nicola, to Nicola and Alexander. Brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's kind of one. It's, it's a shame that uh, Dom Nichols, our defence and security editor, is not here because he would really be able to go into the, the nitty gritty and the details of these what are really quite impressive weapons. But so we've seen basically a spell of, of strikes on Russian munitions dumps in the last few weeks. And that kind of correlates with the fact that these HIMARS, which are the, the US uh, version and then the UK kind of donated multi-launch rocket systems, arriving on the battlefield and in the hands of the Ukrainian army. And so I think given what we've seen, it is fair to suggest that the attack last night on the Russian munitions depot was carried out by one of these weapons. And there's there's, there's absolutely stacks to say about them. Um, the Ukrainians, now they're kind of arriving in their hands, are quite confident that they can be pivotal in turning the dial and helping them. And so um, for today's... Uh, Telegraph Dispatches newsletter, our email newsletter, which you can sign up to. Um, I've looked at their immediate impact on the battlefield and the kind of the terror they've created among pro-Kremlin figures. So we've got military bloggers and former commanders now actually openly criticising Russian tactics, suggesting they're not doing enough to camouflage or move munitions dumps, basically leaving them open to these long-range attacks. And these these missiles um, can hit at targets of 50 miles away with kind of pinpoint precision. Roland Oliphant, our senior foreign correspondent, did a great piece in today's paper online for everyone to read um, about how witnesses of these attacks said that they can literally strike a penny from 50 miles away. That is the kind of levels of precision that we're seeing and that these GPS kind of guided missiles and rockets have. And so one of the things I would kind of suggest our listeners go on Lockheed Martin, who supplied the HIMARS, they're the, the kind of the high mobility artillery rocket systems that the US are donating have got these videos on their YouTube and they show like kind of how they work. They they literally only need three men to man them. They need a driver, kind of a gunner, and then like the rocket officer. And they can they don't need any extra support vehicles. They can literally they have an inbuilt crane that can pick up the six missiles, the battery of six missiles, load them up within three minutes, drive off, fire, and then be out of kind of range of any kind of Russian counterfire within minutes they are kind of truly remarkable bits of kit um but i think that is one thing we're going to look at kind of as the summer goes on and as kind of russia is in this operational pause ukraine is going to be really looking at targeting their logistical their logistical hubs and basically making it harder for russia to kind of replenish and launch offenses elsewhere and so one of the complaints that military bloggers were making that the operational pause actually leaves Russian kind of ground forces and their kind of logistics are open to attack. They're basically saying that Russian forces 
because their pools aren't doing enough light, uh, enough work to hit the lines of communication. So that's basically the roads that Ukraine uses to move the MR, MLRS and the HIMARS systems around. Um, so that's that's one thing that's really kind of bugging the Kremlin, and, and it's kind of one of the first sorts of proper open scent that we're seeing against the Kremlin's tactics since the war in Ukraine. So we've we've kind of had we could speak about. Um, kind of soldiers' wives complaining about their conscription or like how they're being driven into the ground and are all exhausted. But actually, this is now tactics being questioned on the battle on the ground battlefield tactics that are being questioned. And the more and more of these systems that the West kind of donates, I know the U, the US have donated about nine, the UK uh, two or three, and there's more kind of German promised ones on the way. Apparently, where we've kind of kind of hold our breath on that one. But the more of these kind of really high-tech systems that arrive in Ukrainian hands and the more kind of Western training they receive, the more lethal they will be. So um, I was in a briefing with a Western official the other day and they were basically saying, look, the more more systems that these arrive and as the Ukrainian forces gain greater capability, especially with the precision, lethality and range, that will basically expand the amount of realistic targets that they've got to hit behind kind of enemy lines. And this will enable them to kind of soften up the Russian line to launch counter-offensive. So I think this is one thing that we should really look for, for across the summer is the effectiveness of these weapons and how the Ukrainian kind of armed forces is developing to a kind of a NATO standard army rather than one that uses kind of the old Soviet doctrine of basically spray and pray, fire as much kind of, munitions as possible and hope for the best i think now we've got these kind of one-off kind of very precision systems that will start to see a lot more kind of unique targets being taken out and hopefully kind of softening the russian lines up for offensives later on well thank you very much joe for that and for the updates let's turn now to the main topic for today which is taiwan now we've spoken a lot on this podcast about the potential ramifications for Taiwan of the war in Ukraine as China, which lays claim to Taiwan, could be, is, is, as we know, looking at the, the conflict in Ukraine and, and how things are developing there and how that might impact what they do in the short and the long term in relation to Taiwan. So to talk about this, we've got Nicholas Smith, who, as I say, is our uh, Asia correspondent and also very lucky to have Alexander Shin, who is based in Taiwan, to discuss this. Um, just turning to Alex- Alexander first, can you just introduce yourself and, and talk about the work that the work that you do? Thank you, Francis, and hi, everyone. Um, I'm really glad to be here. Thank you so much. I would like first to clarify to avoid future confusion. Uh, I am not Ukrainian-Taiwanese. I'm a Ukrainian of Korean descent, but I lived in Taiwan since last year. And, um, well, since I came here, of course, as most Ukrainians has all had a different focus, I guess, but then it changed with this new invasion. Currently, I'm involved in several projects in support of Ukraine, several fundraising campaigns, and in the movement that we call Taiwan Stands with Ukraine, which is a nationwide uh, largest in Taiwan movement in support of Ukraine. So that's the things uh, I've been doing here. 
Thank you. Um, and um, Nicola, just perhaps you can give us a bit of the lay of the land on some of the context around um, Taiwan and, and why the war in Ukraine is very relevant to this. And then we can, we can talk to Alexander further. So Taiwan and Ukraine, there are a lot of parallels between their situations. And Taiwan uh, has long faced a threat from China, uh, which the Chinese Communist Party claims Taiwan as its own territory, even though it has never ruled there. Taiwan is a democracy of some 23.5 million people, and it has its own government, its own currency, its own military. And for decades, it has faced the threat of invasion from China. And what I've seen on the ground, I've been here since 2016, and I've seen in the past few months since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that the public has become very, very much aware, uh, much more aware um, of this threat that they're facing from China. There's there's a huge um, public consciousness now about what could happen if there was a worst case scenario. It's really focused people's minds about how they should react, how the government would react, how the public would react. And they've been watching Ukraine very, very closely. Um, It's been a huge news story. Um, The Taiwanese government has made several large donations to Ukraine in terms of humanitarian aid and medical supplies. Uh, There have been a lot of public um, or private groups who have also been making donations. And there's been a lot of empathy in the public for Ukraine's crisis and for the situation for for people there. Uh, It's been a real wake-up call, really, for the Taiwanese public that they could face a worst-case scenario. And there's been a lot of debate about how they should respond. Uh, This has been in multiple ways. Firstly, they've been looking at how to create a credible enough deterrent to prevent China from from invading. And that's in terms of weapons purchases, what weapons to buy. There's been a a large focus on asymmetric warfare. Uh, This means to, to buy small portable weapons that could inflict maximum damage on invading forces. And this is a tactic that that we have seen in Ukraine. So Taiwan's been following that closely. There's also been a lot more debate about the professional army and reservists and how best to organize that and also about how to create a, a sense of resilience among the public you know teaching people how to deal with an emergency a medical emergency when hospitals are not available there have been an increase in courses teaching people how to to do trauma training there's been an increase in people's interest in going to gun ranges, even though guns are very strictly controlled. So a lot of the training is done on on replica guns. And there's been a lot of debate on how to reform mandatory military service and, and how Taiwan can best prepare the whole of society to make the, the concept or the, the prospect of China invading extremely painful for Beijing and to change that political calculation. And this is, these are issues that have long been in the political sphere in Taiwan. This is nothing new, but certainly in the past few months, the situation in Ukraine has really focused minds and really 
put all of these issues to the forefront of, of political debate. Well, thank you, Nicola. Um, Alexander, you're a coordinator of the Ukraine-Taiwan Forum. Um, I'm sure our listeners will be very interested in, in, in the work that you do for that. Uh, how long has it been going? Has it been from before the war or is it a, a recent development since February? Well, we had the idea of this project uh, for quite a long time now. Um, but with this new invasion, I think it kind of gained a new meaning for us because, well, since we don't have an embassy or any representation in Taiwan, uh, often things that Taiwan does for Ukraine go unnoticed, unfortunately. And as Nicola said, Taiwan is indeed doing a lot of things for Ukraine. So we really didn't want this to go unnoticed in, you know, by our society, by our government, by um, the media. That's why we created Ukraine plus Taiwan Forum to be able to discuss and amplify about what Taiwan is doing for us to the Ukrainian audience in Ukrainian language. So it's been going on for several uh, months now, and uh, I think it's going very well. We kind of managed to capture Ukrainian people's uh, attention on the aid that Taiwan is providing, um, both, you know, the official Taiwan and the uh, regular people. And um, I think it kind of helped us to also... um, gain the attention from the official Ukrainian government. And that, of course, helps us to here being in Taiwan to leverage more aid, to advocate for more support from the Taiwanese people, because now we can show them that Ukraine is indeed acknowledging that support. Thank you. Just a question to both of you, possibly starting with Nicola. You've touched a bit on this already, but I'm just very interested in what is the feeling now in Taiwan? Is there a real sense that, that there could be an, a, an imminent danger from China in a very short period of time within a matter of months? Or are we still thinking here much more sort of long term from that, depending on, on what takes place in Ukraine in, in the coming year or so? There's always been a sense of danger in Taiwan. There's always been a sense that time is running out for China to take uh, aggressive action against Taiwan. And that has been seen uh, increasing in the past few years, especially since the the Hong Kong protests and the crackdown on, on Hong Kong. Taiwan has, has had this sense of we could be next and had, what do we do to prevent that? And that's a, a sense that has also been picked up in the international community as well. Uh, the U.S. has has for decades been Taiwan's uh, biggest arms supplier, and in recent years they have increased their rhetoric and their their um, their requests to Taiwan to invest a lot more in asymmetric weapons. And we have seen that we've seen increases in in Taiwan's defense budget over the past year and. Uh, a much tighter focus on what weapons should be used to defend uh, defend the islands from China, and and not only to defend the island, but also to prevent uh, to prevent an invasion in the first place. And when I was in Ukraine a few weeks ago, that was what officials were saying to me there that they they felt that Taiwan still had this chance to stop an invasion um, and. You know, to to prevent China from from taking that action to show to China that it would be a very painful calculation, 
And so this is this has always been um, one of Taiwan's top priorities, and this sense of um, you know China coming closer to to making taking aggressive action has been growing. Last year, the the defense minister of Taiwan predicted that China would be capable of invading by 2025. That echoed a similar calculation from the head of Indopaycom in the US, who um, Admiral Philip Davidson, who last year said that it could happen within six years. And so there's really, there really is always a sense that time is running out, that we have to do everything possible now to change President Xi's calculation. And the Ukraine war hasn't changed that timescale. I don't think people think that, or the government here thinks that invasion is imminent, but it has certainly uh, raised the debate of how do we best take action now to prevent the worst case scenario. Just before I go back to Alexander, why... What, 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 why does China see Taiwan as, as, a, as a threat or as a target, just for the benefit of our listeners who perhaps aren't aware of, of the geopolitical significance of Taiwan? China doesn't see Taiwan as a threat, but it, it does. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party claims Taiwan as its own territory, even though the Chinese Communist Party has never ruled Taiwan and, and the People's Republic of China, Taiwan has never been part of the People's Republic of China. Um, it, it, Taiwan has, uh, if we go back, um, just in a, a kind of brief summary, if we go back to the 1911 revolution in China, um, both governments in tai- Taipei and Beijing trace their origins to, to the 1911 revolution that, that ushered in a, a new Republic of China. Uh, but the Communist Party have never captured Taiwan in, in a subsequent civil war. So in the, in the late 1940s, Chiang Kai-shek, who was the leader of the nationalist Kuomintang, who was fighting communist forces in the Chinese civil war, he retreated to Taiwan with an estimated 1.2 million military personnel and civilians. And so he relocated the seat of the, Rep- the Republic of China to Taipei and imposed martial law. And this was lifted in 1987. And Taiwan is now a thriving democracy. It, it has a very strong sense of identity. And so the Kuomintang forces initially, it was their goal to retake mainland China that goal has long been cast to the wind. But now um, President Xi Jinping sees it as his legacy to to take over Taiwan um, and claims that Taiwan has been a historical territory of of China, um, which just isn't the case. There are also um, very strong political reasons for China to want to take over Taiwan. It has a Pacific coastline um, that would give China a great military advantage in the Pacific, especially at a time where it's an increasing competition with with the US over influence in in the Indo-Pacific. And Taiwan is also a world leader in semiconductors. Um, It dominates the semiconductor industry. Um, so there are many reasons why it would be advantageous for, for China to, to gain control over Taiwan. 
but it's a, as I said, it's it's a thriving democracy. It functions like any other nation, um, and there's also a, a strong moral imperative not to allow China to to just take over um, any territory that it wants. In the same way that that it is for you know to oppose Russia taking over whatever territory it wants to. Thank you, Nicola. Alexander, just wonder if you've got any any thoughts on what Nicola was saying there. Um, But also I had a question, which is, uh, what is your message to Taiwanese people when you speak to them about Ukraine? How do you impress upon them the significance or do you not need to? Is Ukraine so omnipresent over there that actually people are very, very aware of, of the importance of this and the potential ramifications for Taiwan? Well, yeah, I agree with Nicola. I feel like uh, uh, the topic of Ukraine and the Russian invasion here is very widely discussed. And indeed, often um, we don't really need to, you know, convince people of the importance of this. Uh, People would come uh, on their own, offer their support and help. And that happens all the time, every day, basically. And... um, well, in many of those conversations we, I have with um, Taiwanese people, I feel like they resonate with our situation on many levels. And of course, there's always this factor of China in the conversation. And people say that because of this new Russian invasion of Ukraine, many Taiwanese people um, sort of, as they say, change the way they view their country the the way they view China, the way they view uh, Taiwan-China relations, and maybe these analogies. Well, they're of course they're flawed because we we here at least try not to say that uh, Taiwan and Ukraine are similar in this regard. Um, but I think this kind of sense helps people resonate more and makes them you know support Ukraine more, donate and uh, advocate for Ukraine. So that happens a lot. Thank you. And just wondering what your your own personal experience has been since the war began. Uh, were you surprised? Uh, do you have a lot of friends and family who are in Ukraine? Perhaps you were even there when the invasion began. Just interested in your personal experience of the last few months. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, this were the worst uh, several months in my life. I won't uh, sugarcoat that. I was in Taiwan since October last year. So when this invasion started, I was here in Taiwan already. And yeah, I do have friends and family in Ukraine. Most of my uh, extended family, they are in southern Ukraine, in um, occupied southern regions. So as Joe mentioned earlier, you know, the the food crisis that is happening right now in Ukraine and globally, um, that's what people that I know, my relatives there, what they experience often is the abundance of food, you know, and I know it would sound weird, but that's the way it works. Um, A lot of food that is produced in this southern agrarian, super fertile uh, regions of Ukraine is trapped and Russians uh, are basically terrorizing the farmers uh, and breaking the, the usual trade routes and now that the produce is not living the occupied areas, and you can see the uh, prices rising in the, uh, as we say, the free territories of Ukraine. And my friends would often tell me how they have to overpay for, you know, basic stuff like vegetables. 
there. While in occupied Kherson, for example, uh, food is, uh, well, produce is so cheap that farmers are actually struggling to um, make, you know, their business as usual. Yeah, so that is happening. Mm, generally, uh, it's been emotionally devastating, of course, but I think the community is something that's really helpful for us uh, Ukrainians overseas. I mean, um, then again, because we don't have an embassy here, we didn't really know other Ukrainian people. Uh, there was no like a centralized community before. But with this new invasion, we've all met each other, mostly, you know, under the uh, the walls of the Russian representative office where we protest all the time. And uh, that's how we got to know each other. It re really helps to know other people who have relatives, friends back home who are going through the same thing. And it really helps us um, not to, you know, give up and keep moving Um yeah, that's, that's where the strength is. Thank you. And just one last question for, um, I have another one for, for, for Nicola. Um, how many are part of your forum? Um, is it a large community or is it a small community that do, that do a lot? Just trying to get a sense of, 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 of how many Ukrainians there are in, in Taiwan. Uh, I think you're talking about not Ukraine plus Taiwan Forum, but uh, Taiwan stands with Ukraine. That's indeed a large movement. We have uh, most of us are Taiwanese and Ukrainians, but of course, key activists are also uh, Lithuanians, Poles, uh, Hong Kongese people. So basically people from all around the world who live in Taiwan and who are not indifferent in this time and who support uh, Ukraine by volunteering their efforts, their resources uh, all the time. Uh, yeah, it's quite a large movement. And then Ukraine plus Taiwan Forum is a platform um, that was created by Liberal Democratic League of Ukraine. It's a youth political organization back in Ukraine. And well, before the second invasion, uh, this organization was advocating for Taiwan-Ukraine rapprochement. And we wanted to close our ties with Taiwan. But now mostly, as I said, we focus on amplifying Taiwan in Ukraine, Taiwan's aid in Ukraine. Thank you. Uh, and Nicola, just turning back to, to you, um, what lessons do you think China and Taiwan are drawing from the Ukraine war, first of all? Because no doubt there's, there's a lot of analysis that's taking place in both Kiev and in Beijing on, on this matter. Absolutely. And we, we don't really know exactly what Beijing is learning from, from Taiwan, um, from Ukraine, sorry, but we can take an educated guess that they will be looking, first of all, at the, the battlefield tactics and how Russia is faring there. Russia was certainly um, was expected to take over Ukraine within a matter of days and, and its army has been falling apart in many ways and, and Ukraine has put up a really uh, good fight, and and even though Taiwan and um, China has invested so much in its navy and its military capabilities, it, its forces are largely untested, and and that must be something that that is on Xi Jinping's mind about uh, how to avoid the same kind of humiliation that that President Putin has faced, and then we also. I'm sure they'll also be looking at how the international community has reacted. We've seen a, a huge response 
from the international community in terms of sanctions against Russia. And that's something that the heads of FBI and MI5 flagged last week in, in a speech in London. They said that China was already trying to find ways to cushion it, itself from the, the from potential sanctions if it takes action against Taiwan. And it will also be looking at how the private sector has got involved and how the, the, the private sector has reacted to the Russia-Ukraine war because it has always relied on on loyalty in a way from from the private sector where China is such a a large market. And another um, issue that I'm sure it's looking at is the, the civil resistance that we've seen in Ukraine where so many ordinary people have stepped up. There has been a huge number of volunteers um, joining the the fight. There's been a a huge response from the Ukrainian public and they've they've been a big part of of defeating Russia's advances in in Kyiv and also in in putting up such a stiff resistance on the front lines. And that's certainly something that Taiwan will be looking at uh, as well. this idea of civil civil resilience um, and civil resistance as well, and there there is a parallel between Taiwan and Ukraine in terms of them both having much larger authoritarian neighbours um, and being on paper they've been they're both vastly outmatched by Russia or China, but Taiwan will be looking at at how. Uh, Ukraine has has taken a, a smart, creative approach to um, really put up such a strong fight against against Russia, and I'm sure that they'll be looking at how how they've done that, both in terms of what weapons they've used and also how they have organised their civilian population, um, and they'll be looking at um, how Ukraine has managed to. Um, how they've managed to really dominate the narrative on what's been happening throughout this whole war. They've done an excellent job at communications and and really putting their message out there. And that's something that I I know that Taiwan is considering. How would they keep communications up and running and how would they put their message out to the world? What's the most effective strategy of doing that? Um, So I I think those are really the the main things that... um, that China and uh, and Taiwan will be looking at just now, and and then there's also just the you know the consideration of how the international community will also react. Um, it, it's it's likely that that the US would take a, a more interventionist approach if if ta- if Taiwan was invaded. Um, it's in 2020, Taiwan uh, was America's ninth largest trading partner, while Ukraine was 67th. Uh, so, you know, Taiwan is also a very integral part of of um, Washington's Indo-Pacific policy. Um, it's strategically, it's part of the so-called First Island Chain, um, and it, it, it's geographically very close to key trade routes in the South China Sea uh, and Indo-Pacific. So these are all things that that will come into consideration, um, both in China, Taiwan, and also in in the United States and the wider international community. 
Thank you, Nicola. That was very comprehensive and, and, and fascinating to hear your perspective on that. Um, we're almost out of time and um, I'll definitely give Alexander the final words. But before we do that, Joe, um, I'll give you the final thought um, or your final thought in a moment. But first of all, I just wanted to ask you something that we haven't covered on this podcast, which is the fact that you have been sanctioned by Russia as part of your work for The Telegraph. And just wanted to hear your experience of that. Did it come as a shock? Did you have forewarning of that? Do you know specifically what it was for? Just, uh, you know, it's a, it, I'm sure it will be of interest to our to our listeners to just to, to hear what it's like to, to be sanctioned. Um, so it's, it's almost a month to the day since uh, since we discovered, and there was was the twenty nine British journalists on there. So from the Telegraph, it was myself, uh, James Rothwell, who's based in Jerusalem for us, Chris Evans, our editor, and Con Coughlin, who's our chief uh, foreign affairs columnist and uh, one of our defence editors. Um, and no, we didn't get any forewarning. We, just, um, I think, Natalia, our kind of correspondent from Moscow, now living in Istanbul, um, emailed me. And said, Joe, you're on the sanctions list. And I was like, I was in a briefing at, at the time on talking about Brexit in my kind of my other life. And it, it, so I must admit, it came as a bit of a shock to me because I, I, you don't often think that your work is kind of read by kind of people in Moscow or or even in other European capitals. You don't kind of feel that picked up at times. Um, so no, it was it was fascinating. Has it has it done anything to me? Um, no, not really. Um, I've not kind of got any ambitions to go to Russia. I did go down to the Kaliningrad border the other day, but I, I kind of thoughtfully decided not to, to try and cross over of fear of being locked up in a gulag for our, what what was called fake news spreading on the Donbass. Um, so no, no, it's, I, I would rather consider it a, a badge of honour um, of the good work that we've been doing at the Telegraph to kind of unearth what's going on in Ukraine from afar. And obviously we've had the great people there and helping them tell the story. So I think the the best thing we could say of it is kind of keep keep ploughing on and keep kind of going through and trying to unmuddle the Russian mistruths and kind of tell our readers and what's actually happening on the ground and what's happening in kind of these rooms of European diplomacy, world diplomacy on sanctions. Fascinating. And and just one other question. Did, did, did you get contacted by... The British government at all, or are you basically just sort of left uh, left to, to to sort of take the take the hit, as it were, or, or do you get advice from from the government about how how you have to proceed based on you know being sanctioned by by a major world power? Uh, no, 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 no help or assistance at all. Um, I think when I told some of my colleagues that work here in in the mission and the embassy to Brussels. Uh, they laughed and they were like, "Why can't I be on the list? Why, why haven't what haven't why haven't I done enough uh, to be included on the list?" Um, so I think at the moment um, they're probably all taking it with quite a pinch of salt and basically hoping that no one from Britain is kind of, especially in kind of the media eye, is foolish enough to go to Russia at the moment because we are considered kind of public enemy number one there for our uh, our support and our backing for Ukraine in its kind of battle against the invasion. So um, no, no, no help, no assistance, uh, but maybe a pat on the back. And I think someone bought me a pint to celebrate. So, Well, no doubt we'll have a lot of invitations from our listeners uh, to buy you another pint, Joe. Thank you for that. Um, and what's your final thought for us today? What should we be thinking about as we enter the next week? Um, so we, we were speaking about kind of Western unity the other day. And I, I, I quite like this story that we, we, we covered in today's paper about how a, 
turbine that was owned by Gazprom, the Russian energy giant, was in Canada for kind of being refurbished, scheduled maintenance. Um, and Canada basically refused to send it back to Russia because of Western sanctions. And it said that flouted the sanctions. But now, uh, over the week, over last weekend, Canada had a bit of a change of heart and said that we will release this turbine to Germany and then Germany can then give it give it to uh, give it to Russia, give it to Gazprom to basically kind of restart um, and restart pumping gas back through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which runs Russian gas from Russia under the Baltic Sea into Europe. And um, Zelensky, in his overnight speech, basically gave a big ticking off to the Canadians saying, look, if you're making exceptions now against kind of this Russian, this terrorist state, what's going to come in the future? You're just allowing yourself to become like a kind of a pawn in Putin's game, essentially. So um, I think actually now we're going to start looking at as kind of cost of living squeezes that we're kind of nearing the winter period and kind of preparations for winter are kind of these Western governments, especially in Europe, going to start looking at kind of maybe loosening or finding ways around their own sanctions on Russia to basically help people here kind of deal with energy shortages, uh, maybe food shortages in the future and stuff like that. That's that's one thing that I would, I would kind of look for. It's uh, maybe not an immediate kind of for the week, but well, the, the one thing we do have is in 10 days, Nord Stream 1, from yesterday is down for maintenance, so it won't be pumping any gas. So um, I think it, they've promised that it will be up and running after 10 days, but the German government has suggested actually Europe should brace itself, and which is mainly itself, uh, for no gas supplies coming from Russia through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline after this 10 days maintenance, so part of kind of Putin's use of energy as leverage for loosing those, those sanctions. So I think that's what we should look forward to in the future days. Thank you, Joe. And Nicola, what are your final thoughts for us? Well, I I think really we've we've often spoken of Ukraine, um, the the war in Ukraine, in the wider sense of it being a battle of democracy versus authoritarianism, and it, Taiwan is very much part of that global debate as well, and. I think that in the same way that Ukraine does not want to be forgotten by the international community, Taiwan does not want to be forgotten either. And I guess in in the UK and in Europe, it it seems like it's the other side of the world, that it's a very abstract issue. And it's really not. An an invasion of Taiwan would impact everyone. Um, As I mentioned, the the FBI and MI5 directors um, said last week that it would have a catastrophic or very dramatic impact on on the business community if there was an invasion of Taiwan. Um, But also it would be a great humanitarian tragedy if if that happened. And and really, I think it's, it's on the international community now to do everything that it can to prevent that from happening. And and that doesn't just mean arms sales to Taiwan. It it means standing up to to China and to um, China's coercive diplomacy globally to prevent this awful scenario from, from ever happening. Thank you very much for that, Nicola. And Alexander, would you like the final word to our listeners? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, f- first of all, thank you so, f- so much for having me. I would like to also uh, commend Nicola 
for her courage, for her reporting from Ukraine, because, well, we all know there's unfortunately no safe place in our country at this moment, and there's always risks for reporters. And just uh, pretty much everyone who reports on Ukraine, you have no idea what kind of uh, important job you're doing because, well, there's, you know, only this much time that people can actually pay attention to someone else's tragedy. And we can see that this attention is uh, going down and I'm sure we'll experience this here in Taiwan as well. So it's extremely important that we keep talking about this because war is going on. Parts of our territories are still occupied and people are still dying. So it's very important that we keep talking about this. And um, um, just something that I wanted um, uh, really to uh, say is the amount of support that Ukraine is receiving now is, uh, I think it's an indication for the Taiwanese people because Taiwanese people can see and it's about their hopes or disappointment on whether if something happens, God forbid, Taiwanese people would be supported by others, would be helped and would be talked about. So I think the more support we give to Ukraine now, uh, the more you know hope we give to Taiwan that uh, this 23 million people that are living on this uh, island will not be left alone when they're fighting for their democracy, for their freedom, for this amazing social system that they've built uh, for people. Um, so that's something that I wanted to say. Thank you so much. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch with us directly by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do see and read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Jaden Irving.